Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Boston today with Deborah First from the Boston Globe, food writer and restaurant critic. I am so glad you were here, Deborah. Thank you for having me. Uh, and Ophelia Dahl, who I've known for a long time and admired for just as long, uh, co-founder of Partners in Health and involved in so many other things. Ophelia, it's such a treat to have you on Add Passion and Stir. I'm happy to be here talking to both of you. I feel like the jobs that you two do, almost anybody uh, who's listening would want either of your jobs uh, because they're fun, they're important, uh, they provide a lot of fulfillment for people in different ways. Um, Deborah, one of the things I think most people would want to know is how do you actually get to be a restaurant critic <laughs> and food writer? Because it sounds like the ideal job. <laughs> It is a very wonderful job, um, and I am very lucky to have it. Um, like most good things in life, I stumbled into it um, pretty much by chance. I got into it through journalism. There's a lot of different paths one might take to arrive where I am lucky to have landed. Um, but I just, I was in journalism. I, I was an editor and I was always interested in food. I grew up in a very food-centric household with uh, parents who really loved cooking. And, um, you know, mealtime was a very important. We always ate dinner together. and Big family or? No, just uh, one sibling, two parents, um, not a lot of extended family. So maybe in some ways that made it, you know, more, even more important for us um, to sort of have that little family unit eating dinner together every night um, over food that, that we had cooked ourselves. And um, so, you know, and my mother was always very interested in like the food of the world and, you know, experimenting with recipes and cooking. So I came into a love of food early, but um, also really was always drawn to the written word and, you know, wanted to write the great American novel or the, the great American chapbook like every other food writer. I think the, the Venn diagram of wannabe poets and food writers, there's a pretty big overlap there. Um, and that could still happen. Well, right? I mean, those Certainly. things can happen in tandem for sure. We're all young. Yeah. I keep telling oh, yeah. myself. Younger every day. So, um, yeah, so I just, I was in journalism. I, I wound up at the Globe, um, you know, hopping from here to there. I was at the Phoenix before that. Um, may I rest in peace and uh, may I rise again. And um, and so, yeah, so I was in the arts department. I was an editor. I was an arts editor for a while um, and a copy editor. And I was writing about food on the side. And then um, Allison Arnett, the very long time esteemed and wonderful uh, Boston Globe restaurant critic, stepped down after a long tenure. And um, I was in the right place at so, the right time. But were you aiming for writing about food? Was that something that you wanted to do for some of the reasons you described? Or did it was it more serendipitous? Um, when when I started writing, I just wanted to write. And then um, gradually, I realized I wanted to write about food. And I didn't, I didn't actually want to write about restaurants or write restaurant criticism necessarily. I just I wanted I think I was more interested in writing features actually when I when I got started. But I also grew up um, my father is a law professor. He specializes antitrust. So there was a strong sort of consumer advocacy um, component alongside the food component. And I think that that a restaurant critic's role ultimately is as consumer advocate and consumer stand in. So um, so I think those two things came together very nicely. Um, 
Well, in a moment, I want to come back and ask you a little bit more about how you do what you what you do because I think sure. most people really are curious, and you probably yes. get this all the time. <laughs> how does a restaurant critic make the decisions? That how do they decide right. what to review, et cetera? So we'll come back to that. But uh, Ophelia, you work with folks who think about food probably in a different way than Deborah and a lot of Boston Globe uh, restaurant review readers do. And your story, of course, has been. Uh, well told, I think, uh, most recently in what I thought was a really fascinating New Yorker profile back in December of 2017 at the end of the last year, um, and the, just the important work you do. But um, for, for those who don't know, just give us a little sense of uh, what set you on your path. Well, I I got into it a little bit um, flukily as well. Um, I, as a high school student, deciding what I wanted to do, trying to decide what I wanted to do with, with, with my life. It's such a, a big crux-like question. But I, I went off to volunteer um, in, and wanted to get some experience. And I was encouraged by my father who said, you should really see a little more of the world, even though I really did think I was a worldly person, um, you know, having, having been to Europe and that sort of thing. And um, I ended up volunteering in Haiti in 1983. And, and you were uh, how old? Uh, 18 and a half. Wow. Um, and... It was and, and fearless, not fearless. Just it just sort of uh, contained my contained my fear. Probably it was it was that um, I really didn't know where I was going or what conditions I'd be going into or what I'd be seeing. It was all new. So in some ways, it was, I was fearless because I had nothing to fear at that point. But I, I I went off and I volunteered for an ophthalmic organization and I stayed in a school for handicapped children in Port-au-Prince and I. Um, I, I walked around and I met people, and um, most importantly, for, certainly for my life, was I. I, I during the, that first six months, I met someone who would become uh, uh, the greatest friend anyone could have, and a, and a partner in this work, and and that was Paul Farmer. And we 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 gelled immediately. And then you know all of the stuff that I had been seeing for the previous four months that would be building in my mind, we suddenly had these conversations, and we would talk all night long night after night just all night long trying to reconcile not really reconcile but trying to understand what it was that we were seeing I was seeing in terms of the sort of the massive poverty the terrible conditions that people were living in and trying to think about how it had happened what could be done about it um you know what was the history of this this country that would make it so and it was the first you know really my first at 18 and a half real immersion in people who had thoroughly different lives than my own. And how, how did Haiti turn out to be the place in the ophthalmology clinic? How, how, how did you end up there? Were, were there a range of options you were looking at? Or? Not really, no. I, I, it was actually at a time, I think it was a little bit before people were doing a lot of volunteering, sort of in terms of it was a, a normal thing to do, which it is now, which is people are encouraged to go off and take a little bit of time, a gap year or whatever. So I my father had had something to do with the person who founded a big um, a big group here. You probably know them, Public Welfare Foundation. Yes. And uh, his mentor, uh, Charles Marsh, had... I'll be um, I never knew that. He was uh, quite involved. And he said, well, why don't you write to Public Welfare um, and see see if they can um, if they have anything to offer you? So I went and they basically said, "Is you know, I laugh now because we have so many people wanting to volunteer for us. I'm like, oh... You know, it's a good thing to let people volunteer, but when you run a medical organization, it's it's hard to it's hard to bring volunteers into an organization that's that you know that has all kinds of complexities to it, and in different countries. And when you're actually looking, a to give people jobs in the country rather than create voluntary 
work for, you know, people like me. Um, but uh, so I wrote and they came back and they said, well, there's this group called I Care. Um, I Care Haiti. And if you go there, you know, you can volunteer. And so I, I, I had nothing but, uh, you know, really energy, passion, goodwill. Um, but I, and I, but I, luckily I knew it. I mean, I wasn't thinking like, oh yes, you know, I can do surgery now and I'll, I'll be very useful to all of you and I can help you with your spreadsheets. I just said, well, oh, okay, well maybe. And, and as I, you know, I, as I thought then, like, I realized there was something very important about just taking stuff in, just really taking all of this new stuff in. You know, um, there's no way you would know this, and I hadn't thought about it for, for decades, but when Share Strength was started in 1984, we were started with a $2,000 cash advance on a credit card, uh, and then a couple other friends pitched in $1,000 or $2,000. But our first grant ever was from the Public Welfare Foundation. And they support us for about four or five years. We typically, we're not really involved with a lot of foundations or traditional philanthropy, but it was, uh, okay, so you and I have some similar roots <laughs> in a way. Uh, amazing. You know, the other thing that I'd read about you and I was interested, in, you had talked about um, your mother who had been uh, felled by an illness when you were very young. And you said I was on, because I think you were talking about your mother's fragility. You said I was on high alert for most of my childhood. And I thought that was so interesting because my mom was chronically, I had a wonderful, wonderful mom. She was chronically depressed. She actually had a nervous breakdown when I was born and she was in the hospital for two years. And I was raised by her sister until um, she got out of the hospital. And this was in days where, you know, they were doing electroshock therapy. They didn't know what they were doing. And as I say, she was a wonderful mom, but she died at 54 of a secanol overdose. And I always had this sense, I never thought of it as like, I'm on high alert, but I had a sense of just like, walking on eggshells and being careful and listening and looking and what could I do to help? Uh, and in a way, I think it made me, I think it sent me in the direction of being not a caregiver, but like almost in the, the same, in the, in the sense that there's a commonality between your work and ours. Yeah, same with me. It didn't, it didn't really seep in, but I, I realized also that there is, there are traits left over even from that, that I, I realized that, you know, I couldn't take a shower very easily without realizing that every few minutes I would stop to listen to see if she had fallen or, you know, not as a not as a four year old. I'm talking about, you know, in adolescence when I would stay with her when she moved back to this country. And but it, it does it. I mean, I think it helps to create that you're you're you are on high alert and yet you're also kind of it's much more in your face. You become more aware of what it is to live with a disability, to feel, you know, um, compromised at an early age and even if you know and my mother was very good at not saying she never said look at me you know I why did I have to have this stroke this was a terrible thing I mean and she was young when she had she, it right she was young she was yeah. 30, 39 wow. but all of these things one appreciates so much more you know uh, when you get older when one gets older and when they're and often when they're not here but I think I was pretty aware as a as a kid that you know if you have a, a mother that needs to hold your hand or someone's hand everywhere you become pretty used to that shoulder to shoulder, side by side accompaniment piece of things so that it's not, I, yeah. So you just, I'm used to it. I'm used to it. I, I'll see someone 400 yards down the road who's can't cross the street at the time. And it just, it's just a developed thing. 
my sister Debbie, who started this podcast with me and started Share Strength with me, uh, she often jokes about how our mom, you know, most moms are trying to encourage their kids to go to school. My mom used to beg Debbie to stay home from school and watch soap operas with her and watch movies. And, you know, she just like wanted and needed that companionship. It was very, very different. And yeah. I think Debbie turned out the same way. Well, you know, one of the reasons I was kind of interested in having the two of you on together, because you're probably sitting here thinking like, what what in the world do we have in common? Why are we on together? But um, I'm not but, thinking that. But, I'm thinking we have a lot in common. Well, I think and one of the things that really strikes me is the role that kind of imagination plays in both of your your works. Um, I know, Ophelia, uh, one of the things that's required reading at Share of Strength is your Wellesley commencement speech in 2006, in which you talk about the importance of using imagination to connect what you call the near and the distant, your own experience with the lives of people you'll never meet. Um, and Deborah, I often think of your work as, you know, you are basically trying to get people to imagine the experience that you've had at a at a table and you describe it so richly and sensuously that it's almost like they either want to go there and try that or not um so I, I i thought that was kind of like an interesting commonality but as i was mentioning earlier to understand how you do what you do deborah just walk us through it how do you decide what you're going to review how do you decide when you've got enough information to publish a review that could be you know, life or death may be too strong a term, but it, it could make or break a restaurant. Um, how do you, how does that process work for you? In terms of selection, you know, we I'm always tracking what's opening, you know, what's on the horizon, um, what maybe is having a notable anniversary, what's been around a long time, where, you know, what what taps into sort of what we're thinking about societally at that time in some way where there might be something interesting to say about that. Um or, you know, if there's a chef change. So there, there are news, there are sort of news pegs to it. Um, and then also places that I think, you know, maybe we stop talking about quite as much because restaurant culture, particularly right now, is so oriented on the new, you know, what's opening, what's opening, what's opening. And then we sort of move, we just keep moving forward. Um, but I think it is worth stopping and looking at like, where, what are the places that really nourish us that we depend on? Um, because a restaurant can be many things, you know, it can be fashion, it can be home, it can be all kinds of things. So, so I'm, I'm always looking for the story and then also just trying to keep people apprised of like their options. Um, so that, so, so you pick a place, I pick a place and yeah. then, you know, I, 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 learn about the background um probably you know if it's been open a while i've been there before you know i i make a couple visits um you know two minimum occasionally more if they're if i'm not quite sure about it um you know and then i just i i try to tell the story behind the place and then sort of um give people a sense of what they would be eating what they would be spending their money on because i think um the role you know, you, you sort of allude to the responsibility of, of the role. And there's a there's a need to be fair to the people who run the restaurant. And there's a need to be fair to the people who will be spending their money at the restaurant. So I think that's really a balance that I that I try to keep in mind at all times. And even when, you know, when leveling negative feedback, as it were, um, I try to do it fairly and not you know snarkily or unjustly um or in a 
in a gratuitous way. Um, but also if something isn't right, I feel like I need to inform the people who are going to be spending their hard earned dollars to go eat dinner there, which is not a cheap proposition. Um, you know, what, what they're getting into. Um, so, you know, it's just sort of a, a balancing, um, as I go along and, and also criticism, you know, is about like what's yummy and what's not yummy, but it's also about like the larger cultural story, um, and the, you know, the human aspect. So I'm just sort of trying to like weigh all that and, and parse it out. Uh, Corby Kummer, who you probably both know and who wrote here in Boston for a long time is a food writer. He was on Ad Passion and Stir and he told us that, um, when something is not good at a restaurant, it actually makes his job harder because he feels like he has to go back more times to make sure it wasn't good rather than just dinging the, the you know, that particular mm -hmm. meal based on that one experience. So he said he has to, you know, he'll, he'll go back and order the same thing three or four times to make sure it's as right. bad as he thought it was. Continually ordering the bad thing, right? <laughs> Do you, still bad. <laughs> Do you um, have to go incognito? I, you know, I still try to maintain that and, and there's sort of a lot of discussion among restaurant critics these days. A lot of people are like unveiling themselves dramatically and I support that, but I still think that there's a value. Um, I'm actually thinking about writing about this soon. I think there's a value in even maintaining the illusion of anonymity. I, you know, I've been writing in this town for a long time. A lot of people do recognize me. I stepped out of reviewing for a while to, to be an editor and so sort of dropped my anonymity for a while. So, you know, some people know me, some people still don't recognize me, um, and I never know which it is. And, and I think that the, the sort of illusion or the pretense that they don't know who I am, even if they do know, sort of just like inserts um, a little distance that, that is helpful in some way um, in, in assessing. And I do things, I don't make the reservation in my own name. You know, I, I have a, I have credit cards with different names on them and, and that kind of thing. You know, I don't wear a wig. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I can really pull that off. Um, so should we say here and now that you're 5'11", you have blazing red hair, you, <laughs> all that true. everybody should look for that. Yes. Um, yes. But and you're I know noticed on Twitter you're holding a plate up in front of your face right, right. in terms that, of your picture. That's more like image inertia than anything else. I've, <laughs> I've just had that image on my account forever and never think to change it. But I you know I'm sort of I'm sort of fine with that. You know I don't I'm sure a lot of people recognize me and I think that's fine. But I also think to not. I do my best to not alert them that I'm coming so that, you know, if they notice me when I'm there, there's really only kind of so much you can only do your best. You can never do better than your best. So give me your best. Like yeah. I'm, I'm happy to, to assess a place on its best. So Ophelia, in the category of how you do what you do, um, what's the best way for people to understand uh, what Partners in Health is really all about? Well, I think people it come at the work in a in a different way sometimes, and it's um, you know we often refer to ourselves as a bit of a Rorschach test for people, which is only true to a certain extent. But I think uh, I'm guessing that share our strength has a has a similar quality to some extent. Although you're about this, you're also about that that larger thing. And the larger thing for us is the is um, really to try to try to build health systems it's really to try to address it's try to address the dearth of um of, of health care in places usually very remote places and and then do what it takes to get health care there which and the reason it's a long game for us is that it's not to just put a thing in place or to do a vertical program and that's 
um, that's one of the things that makes it, I think, the most interesting and the most, uh, the most transformational. Because although if you go to a place and you say, you know, the, the situation is terrible, uh, women are dying in childbirth, and there's terrible malaria and all kinds of other things, you can't just say, well, okay, we'll fix that and we'll fix that. It's really, it requires a, a platform. It requires the things that, you know, systems that we take for advantage. And it's, you know, and that putting in place systems in a place where there are no roads is, is, a, is a tall order, but a, a satisfying one. And it's, it's why we really came, it's why we share the, um, you know, we know the importance of food as well. I mean, it's a, we, we, we're often less so now, but we used to be called accused of mission creep. You know, but you're a medical organization. Why are you thinking about school and why are you thinking about food and all this kind of thing? And, you know, I, you're both smiling. So I know that that it, it's obvious to you, but I, I think it's not obvious to every everyone. And, you know, we have felt that that if you're if you're if you're taking care of a patient who has HIV and they feel better, there is no question that every single time the first thing they do as soon as they start to feel better is ask for some food. And as soon as they have had enough to eat, they ask always if they can learn to read, read and write and when they've done that they ask for a job it's like you know and you can either look at this in terms of you know if you give a mouse a cookie or a moose a muffin or whatever it is it's gonna you're gonna end up doing all of these other things and you can feel overwhelmed by that or you can say oh yes that's all the stuff we have <laughs> you know so so like to me that rings incredibly true but also um sometimes harder to sell or at least a more nuanced message so when i think about it in terms of our work at share our strength everybody is for feeding a hungry child nobody's against feeding a hungry child uh the best thing we could do for a child and this is kind of an extension of what you were saying ophelia the best thing we could really do for a child is help that child's parents or adult caregivers be in a position to support them not everybody's for that right no one's against feeding a kid but not everyone's for supporting their parents and uh, so for us, it, it ultimately will require what you described as mission creep as well. But how do you, I guess, how do you educate people as to the, the necessity of that? Well, I, I think we're lucky enough now to have, um, to have a track record and to be able to show that actually if you, if you not only um, help to build a clinic, but you also provide jobs and train people, you're going to lift the, the economy of the entire community. So it's it's less of a hard sell for us now, although it becomes, you know, increasingly more difficult to to keep funding this. So I would say the other part of it is, um, and this you know very well, is the partnerships piece of it. How do you make sure that you actually have um, partnerships with, and for us, it's, it's it always um, the government. So, and that can be the local government or it can be the national government of the countries in which we're working. Which are how many? How many countries? Ten. Ten. So... You know, and that's that can be difficult depending on which country you're in. It can be extremely difficult, and um, or 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 taxing or painstaking is really what it is. And you know, sometimes that that's that's why we do refer to this work as accompanying. You know, and and that sort of I think rather profound word now refers to so much for me in terms of what it means. It used to mean we would we would uh, work with community health workers and train them, and that would they would accompany patients, and then you realize that. Well, actually, you know, we accompany donors and supporters and we are also accompanied and we accompany governments and com governments accompany us. So it, it it really is fundamentally about partnership in terms of, of what we do. And 
you know, some things fail along the way too. I mean, we've 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 tried to do things that you feel like you've gone ten steps forward and fifteen back, and that's that's hard. But in the end, what we've been able to see is is more than incremental progress. And once you have a bit of that under your belt, it's it's easier to sell a big complex mission that really is big and complex because the issues are big and complex. Um, but I, you know. I'll never forget you talking to me about the No Kid Hungry, Hungry, right, right, how right. concise that is. And it says it all in the title and Share Our Strength um, appeals enormously to me because I, I love the idea of it being open-ended and, and, and huge and about something. Uh, Deborah, you've also used your voice and your platform to educate people to um, issues of public consequence. Uh, last time we spoke, it was over the phone, you were writing a story about the impact of potential uh, cuts in the SNAP food stamp program. How do you how do you think about that? How do you balance your responsibilities uh, in terms of wanting to help people understand the uh, all the ways in which food intersects with so many other things we all care about with just some of the basic, like I need to know if uh, Myers and Chang's, you know, uh, duck is 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 good or not? <laughs> well, you should always eat Myers and Jenks duck. <laughs> I'll answer that. That's a much easier question. Um, you know, I think that when food everybody eats, and so I think it's a it's a really easy, um, clear. You can illustrate human issues through food very clearly. And so, for example, the story that you're alluding to um, was about a potential change in the SNAP benefits that people were getting very head up over, where they were going to change out a lot of the fresh food options for canned food options. And, um, you know, I sort of looked at, you know, what, what the weekly benefits would be um, and what you could buy for that with those benefits if you were able to buy fresh food or if you had to buy the more shelf-stable products that, that they were suggesting a move toward. And it, it just, you know, it, it's it actually doing it and cooking the food and trying to meal plan and come up with it and just sort of illustrating it that way. Um, you know, it wasn't, it, it's, it's very easy to sort of um, illustrate the the moral crux of the situation um, by cooking two different meals and, and seeing what's on the plate, you know, and so I think I think food is always a a, a nice way to illustrate that 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 really show can show some of the injustices in society that that people that's really easy for people to understand. Um, and you said you said something earlier when you were first describing your role as um, you said something about restaurants reflecting other aspects of society. What did you mean by that? I found that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, a, you know, a restaurant always tells a story and, and tells about where we are in our culture because it shows what we're willing to spend money on. And, you know, sort of there was a time in the 90s when everything was, you know, excess and rich steak and, you know, caviar was on everything. And, um, you know, I, I feel like we're moving to to a time when we're really um, embracing the ways that people eat all over the world, embracing food as culture. People are cooking really food that tells their own stories. Um, and and I think that that we as a culture are really responding to that right now. Um, 
you know, this chef Eduardo Jordan in Seattle, um, who won a bunch of James Beard awards in 2018, you know, he's sort of taking, you know, soul food in a way, but he's making, you know, he went to cooking school. He's like an incredibly accomplished chef. Um, and he's, he's, he's cooking this food that has like deep meaning for him. Um, and people are really responding to that. And I think we're seeing that, you know, all, all over the country, um, just these very sort of personal, um, places that, that amplify different cultures because we're not, you know, we are, we're so narrow casted now. Um, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to buy like the whole album. We just want to buy like the one song, you know, we have, everything is strands. We don't all watch the same television show anymore. And we're, I think we're much more open to a diversity of genre in, in all aspects, in music, in television and in food. And so I think, um, I think restaurants are sort of really capturing and amplifying that right now. You wrote um, what in, in our little world at Chair Strength, working with as many restaurants as we do, was a kind of a controversial mm. piece recently <laughs> about why Boston's restaurants don't win national awards. Right. And there was some pushback from that. I know Will Gilson, who's been involved with this at the Puritan. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and I think part of what you were saying in that article was that Boston restaurants, there were a whole variety of reasons that you gave, but one of which was that Boston restaurants maybe don't tell that story of, of where they come from and their connection as well as they could. When you, when you wrote it, did you, did you, you knew you were going to get pushed back? Oh yeah. I mean, I fully, I fully, I, I wrote that story to start a conversation because I, I have noticed that um, that Boston doesn't win these national awards and Boston doesn't get this national attention. You know, it's not viewed as hip or or whatever by like people from New York or L.A. or, you know, even even a place like Detroit, which is um, so similarly sized to Boston. And I would say that overall, the Boston restaurant scene is much more advanced and much stronger. And yet I would say also Detroit has gotten a certain like much more national buzz than Boston has over the last couple of years. And so I, I just think that's a really interesting phenomenon. I wanted to to look at that and talk to national critics about why that's happening in that and what I was just alluding to about telling stories and, and amplifying culture um, was sort of part of it. And, and to me, you know, what we have such amazingly talented chefs in this town and there's no shortage of ideas. And I, I feel that, um, you know, to have those quirky little places, you have to be able to afford to do it. And I think that there are institutional red tape um, obstacles to that. And, I, I, you know, liquor licenses are just obscenely expensive around here. And people like Ayanna Presley are working to maybe change that up a little bit um, and open up who can afford a liquor license. But um, but to me, this you know, is the, now the Democratic candidate for yeah. Congress, <laughs> right, uh, who unseated Michael Capuano, Ayanna, right. Ayanna Presley. So, you know, so I think I, I'm not sure what can be done about it because I don't think rents are about to go down in the city of Boston. Um, you know, I think we're going to continue to see creep out to smaller cities, um, possibly, you know, suburbs, places like Worcester or Providence. You can open a, a restaurant doing, you know, something incredibly quirky and personal and charming and you don't have to spend a kajillion dollars on a, on a liquor license. So, right, right. Or Portland, which, you know, I, I used this Bon Appetit to just um, 
anointed Portland, like the restaurant city of the year, Portland, Maine. And people do often drive up there for the day from here just to eat food because the food there is so is so good. And, and you know, I used that as my news peg for this story. But I've been talking about writing this story for probably two years now because and there's always another news peg, you know. And, and so I just was like, I'm going to do it now. Um, you know, and I knew I might never eat in this town again and it would make people <laughs> mad. But, you know, I'm not... <laughs> called a restaurant critic not a restaurant cheerleader and you know um so i'm comfortable with that um and yeah so so i i just think yeah portland it did and and i yeah i'm i'm really glad and i hope it continues um we're talking about doing some sort of round table um bringing chefs together to talk about these issues because you know i i believe that we are all on the same side of this which is that we want to see boston continue to develop as an interesting fruitful restaurant town in which everyone gets to actually make their passion projects realities um and so i think actually we are all on mostly the same side of the table <laughs> i think so too um Ophelia, you mentioned working in uh 10 countries and i think of partners in health i know you're in haiti rwanda i don't know everywhere you are but i'm, I'm assuming there are countries that you've um diagnosed as the the least served uh, or in most in need of this type of help uh would you do you ultimately want to, I guess there's a question about ambition and need. Do you ultimately want to be in 20 or 30? How did you, how do you decide 10? We all live and deal with, you know, living in a world with finite resources. Um, and I guess particularly when you see uh, what I've seen, having visited your hospital in Haiti, uh, the absolute, I mean, this is, this is not, you know, make or break a, you know, a business. This is life or death consequences for a lot of people. When you know that, uh, how do you um, prevent yourself from spinning off in a hundred different directions? Well, I think it depends who you speak to. I think that there are probably some people who know and love us who think we have, you know, spread a little bit too far. But, you know, I think what we've been guided by um, is, first of all, an invitation to a place this this is as we grew. This is not happening right now. But we were guided by an invitation and, and, and a funding partner um, most of the time. Um, and then, of course, we we always look at the need, at the gap, uh, the burden of disease, if you like, and then the gap. But I would say now our ambitions having, and, and most recently we, we were invited to West Africa um, after the Ebola epidemic there and during during the Ebola, I wish it was after the Ebola epidemic or I wish it was even more before. More before. Um, but that was, um, that, was, that was not difficult as a decision to make as an organization backed by a, a fantastic board. What was difficult is that we knew that um, it would be two more places that we would go and we would know we knew that we would be then there for a minimum of 10 years absolute minimum um and so um in that sense it's a big commitment it's a huge commitment of resources um and but uh, you know the the idea now is not to go to five or ten more countries the idea now is to try to show what the components are of the model i don't love that word but what what's necessary to create a robust health system in a place that that doesn't doesn't have one, and um, you know, and and then show how those can be created and recreated. And one of the things that we're working on at the moment is um, the building of a university for global health equity in northern Rwanda, because I mean, we realize that you 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 have to if you're going to 
build or change a health system, you have to have physicians, clinicians, you have to also have a supply chain, you have to have all of these different things. And a, a small-ish nonprofit, however well-meaning, can't do things like create academic pipelines of clinicians and that kind of thing. So we, we have a partnership. And, and that's the purpose of the University for Global Health Equity would be to incubate that and teach Te it. Teach and... it, incubate it, make sure that, you know, that people there, I mean, we've already been doing this in on a country by country basis. We have two very important um, partnerships in this town with Harvard Medical School and the Brigham Women's Hospital and have started global health um, residencies and that kind of thing. And then now, I mean, when you when you train, when you train anybody in anything like, um, you know, a clinical um, fellowship program, you then have somebody who's trained for life. And then there's a sort of almost exponential quality for how many other people could be trained by that person. But if you have no clinicians and no teachers in a country because of genocide or civil war or that kind of thing, then you know, it's really starting from scratch. So that's what we've tried to do is to sort of make more robust the actual pipeline and, and, and system that's there and train people and then expand it. So that's the idea. So I'd love to take you from the system level down uh, to the ground, because I know that you've had experiences that, you know, most of us never get to have, whether it's working in communities or villages in Haiti or Rwanda. Uh, and I'm sure there's, in some ways, there's probably so many that they almost all blur together, but are there any that stand out in terms of a, um, an individual, a child, a family that you saw impacted by your work, you saw what they needed, you were able to fulfill it. And, and for you personally, um, you know, and like we all go to our office and get caught up in like, oh, I can't believe I'm still sitting in this staff meeting. But sometimes when I feel that way, I think back to like, Oh yeah, there was that child I met on the on the border, the Texas-Mexico border, and I know why I've got to keep coming to these meetings and keep doing what I'm doing because we made a difference in the life of that child. Are there any of those that stand out for you? There, there are there are a number, and some of them meld together because they're similar, and and but most of them don't. Um, one story is about a a boy, a young man now called Bobby, um, whose mother had cerebral malaria while she was pregnant with him um, and we didn't know she was pregnant at the time she got treated for cerebral malaria she lived she um, gave birth to Bobby in a place where we were putting into place primary care and education and he had access to vaccinations and all of the things that 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 we would have as well and um, and then at the end um, of that he comes out he decides he wants to go to medical school um, we ha we're able to send him to medical school and he comes back and now he's a resident in the new university hospital that we built after the earthquake. That's that's an example of the really long view yeah, of this. Of, what span of years is that? <laughs> that was about uh, probably 22, 25 wow. years, something like that. But it didn't even occur to me until we you know, had a wonderful communications director who went down there and she was taking photographs and she said, oh, that's Bobby. And I found a photograph of... Paul weighing Bobby when he was probably about six months old, um, you know, to try to make sure that he was getting enough nutrition. But it was that, you know, it's that whole accompaniment piece when you when you get to measure things in terms of that. That's an unusual story. But there are, you know, there are other stories of, of people who, you know, you saw on death's door because they had been diagnosed with HIV in the mid 80s and or late 80s. And then you see them come back. And it's a 
you see them come back and you see that they you know if, if they've uh, transmitted the virus to their children that their children can be treated and that you know you have these one-on-one -on -one interactions and then as i said earlier you you become friends with them you give them jobs you 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 know that's what's remarkable and for me um now i mean it's why i often talk about haiti or rwanda um but Working now in Sierra Leone and Liberia, I have less of those personal connections. I'm going to Sierra Leone tomorrow, but you know those those sort of really close connections of, with people that have lasted years and years. Those are very meaningful parts of this work. And so, well, so connected to that, how has your own one of the things I love about what about you is that you've been doing this for as long as you have, and maybe that's just because I'm biased because I've been doing this for. 30 years and I've got this theory uh, you and I wrote a book called The Cathedral Within that you know you like cathedral builders some of us work on things our entire lives uh, without necessarily seeing them finished but that still be there's a still tremendous importance and value to doing that uh, what's it been for you how has your role changed I guess you know because you've been you started out as you know there were you and Paul Farmer and maybe one other um, and um, the three of you probably deciding everything and now there's probably a little bit more, uh, not bureaucracy, at least more layers that you have to go through to get things done. And I've, I've found, at least in my case, that uh, one of the things you have to do to build an institution is you have to invest a lot of others with ownership, and which means you have to take, you know, you have to take ownership and responsibility away from yourself and, and, and distribute it. So how has it been for you? And how's that changed? And how's your role evolved? I've, I've, I've loved the change. I've, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's taken, you know, as you say, you know, early on, it's actually it's a it's a local story. It's a Boston story in many ways because the other two co-founders were Tom McCormack, who's here, and, and Tom White, who owned a construction company, and all of us with very different skill sets. Um, you know, that came together and built it. And I think for a long time it was very much a founder-led and founder-driven organization, and that meant that you know we could do things very nimbly, and uh, we didn't you know have you know a board to answer to and. You know a, a structure so it made things really easy and and that was good for the early on in the organization it's also been good to watch it grow and we've had these sort of giant and dramatic inflection points um you know one of them related to the earthquake in haiti um but around about 2014 i realized that as we had grown and as we became more of a uh, an organization that really wanted to focus long term on changing systems and making sure that we could do that exactly as I was saying earlier by building universities with governments in different countries and making sure that we had people who were trained and that we had a robust research wing um, of the of the organization that my you know my my own skill set um, was not right for the organization we had become and that was that was not a difficult thing at all that was a for me it was it was lovely. It was like, oh wow, this this wonderful organization has has outgrown not me in terms of I, I I'm still intimately involved with the organization, but it's pretty great when you can hand that over and handed it over um, in terms of the you know the executive directorship to Gary Gottlieb, who's a um, a physician himself, a psychiatrist, and and formerly um, uh, the lead and head of Partners Healthcare. So. That that part has been good to be able to stay involved very very much and feel um, you know deeply connected to the work that goes on there and yet also don't feel that I am you know somehow trying to stretch myself to fit into a position that that the organisation has outgrown so it's it's good and and where will it take you next 
Well, you know, it was funny when Deborah was saying, um, yeah, she was talking about writing and that sort of thing. It is, it, it always amazes me of how much time can be filled up even when you're, you know, no longer in the role you were in. You still are, are oh, for sure. You're still busy 24 hours a day, it feels like. But if I could really make time for something, it would be to try to, I've been writing a book on and off for a number of years now. It was, it started off as a memoir, um, and and was about my my father, and then I closed. Your that. father was Roald Dahl for for anybody that doesn't know. And uh, it was a a memory of childhood, um, and now um, and I put that away. And then, as I've gotten older and a little bit more distance, I realized that I actually want to write more about. I would I wouldn't want to leave him out of it, but I want to incorporate in sort of this lovely experience that I've had in being able to be part of this this uh, organization and a kind of movement towards global health. And that's what I'd like to be able to do. And I am so in awe of people who can make the time to write and corral their thoughts and and, and communicate beautifully. And uh, that's what I'd like to do. So Deborah, for somebody who has been listening and thinks Deborah really does have the best job in the world, I want to do that someday. <laughs> what, what advice would you have for a young woman or young man who's thinking of becoming a writer or a journalist and the best way to get into it? Um, well, the times are different now <laughs> than when I started, and journalism is is a tricky time. Um, I think you know if you if you want to get into it, like if you really are feeling it. <laughs> then you should really go for it. Reach out to people, talk to people, meet with people um, the same way you would get started in anything. And also um, be, you know, be writing, I think, because we do now have the power to get our own voices out there. Um, you know, if you if you can really connect with people um, and and you can get your voice out there, they can really help amplify it via social media and, you know, there are just so many there's so much more potential online with places like medium to write your own thing and not have to be affiliated with an organization um and and get it out there so i think you know a combination of networking and and doing um and just working on the work that you that you see just do it <laughs> one of uh one of the pieces of advice Ophelia, i know that you gave in your wellesley commencement speech was don't try to plan too far ahead, uh, which I always think is is great advice. And I think it has to do with also what you're saying, Deborah, which is, you know, just just do it, just start, see where it takes you, let the zigs and the zags and the detours all form you in a way. And I think for young people today, that's particularly formative advice. Yeah, when, when I'm stuck, sometimes I just say to myself, the difference between writing and not writing is writing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> great advice. That's really I will, good advice. I, I will keep that in mind. Um, <laughs> I can also give you a weekly deadline if you want. Oh, I find okay. that really that would, <laughs> <laughs> that might that might work well. <laughs> you know, one of the things I was thinking with respect to that is that I I um, get to spend quite a bit of time with young people, and I I notice how how eager they are to feel as though they have so much pressure on them to make sure that they are making the right set of choices now. And God forbid they should make the wrong choice at 16 or 18, and then it will lead somewhere else. And always they ask me, what was that thing that you did that made you make the right decision that allowed you to get this way, you know, in your career? And I said, I did not have a plan. I allowed myself to move and 
and be affected by things and then come back, which is not to say, you know, you, if you want to go to graduate school, you should go to graduate school. But but it, I think it's this enormous pressure that, that is put on young people today. So you've got to have it right. And, um, you know, you really only know your story in hindsight. And there's a, you know, there's too much pressure on young people to think that they, that we all knew where we were going right. when we right. were 19. I still don't know. Well, you know, we've probably had a hundred chefs on this podcast and I'll bet 90 of them did not start out to be chefs uh, and as we've listened to their stories what we find out is they started out doing what they felt they were supposed to do or what their parents expected them to do and it was only when they met frustration or failure or something went wrong or some accumulation of these kind of frustrations that they stopped and they say wait a second what am I really passionate about I'm passionate about cooking. I remember cooking with my grandmother. I remember cooking with my dad, and that's what I want to do. And so you almost you don't want to plan too far ahead because you want you need that experience to right. guide it. Right. And if you're if you're passionate about something like social justice, I mean it's an obvious thing, but you can you can apply what it is you you love and you're passionate about, and you can apply it in those kinds of ways. I mean, I think I think I have seen that without question in, in Boston and particularly amongst the chefs here. I've seen the, the food community in this town rally around causes in a very meaningful way. Well, thank you both for being with us. Ophelia, the Partners in Health website for anybody who wants to find out more information, is it PIH.org? That's it. That's the, that's the best yeah. place to go? Yeah. Um, and you guys accept uh, donations, you accept volunteers, you accept support of all kinds? We accept support of all kinds. We we particularly are partial to donations. Excellent. Uh, Ophelia Dahl, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. Um, and Deborah First, thank you for being on Ad Passion and Stir. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Thanks for listening. Our producer is Paul Woodle, also known as Woody. Kelly Griffin and Debbie Shore also helped make this podcast work. If you care about any of the issues that you've uh, listened to us discuss today, um, one of the most important things you could do uh, is not just go to our websites, but vote. And I just want to say as many times as I can between now and the election on November 6th uh, that vote for the candidate and party of your choice. But too many people sit on the sidelines and we just can't afford to do it in these times. So thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir.